Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, we come this morning to the 103rd and very last sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's look together at a very famous passage, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. These are the words of God. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Our God and Father, we thank you for this gospel that the Spirit gave through Matthew. And we thank you for this grand, glorious text. We pray, open it today to us, that we might be your faithful missionaries. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's any text in the Bible that the evangelical knows, evangelical church knows, other than John 3.16, it's the great commission. But sometimes we can know something so well that we don't know it. Familiarity can cause it to be taken for granted. And so if there's any Bible text the evangelical church needs to get to know again, it's the Great Commission. And we need to begin by considering the Great Commission not as a standalone text, but as what it really is, the conclusion of the story Matthew has been telling us in his gospel. And that story, if you recall, is that Jesus is true Israel. And at the same time, Jesus is true God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is at one and same time true God with man and true man with God. And Matthew shows us that through his life and ministry, Jesus relives the story of God and Israel with Jesus himself playing both parts. And so as Israel was called out of Egypt, Jesus was called out of Egypt as an infant. As Israel came through the waters of baptism in the Red Sea, so Jesus came through the waters of baptism. As Israel was tempted in the wilderness, so Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. As God gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai, so Jesus ascended a mount and gave the law to Israel. And so on it goes throughout Matthew's gospel. And when we get to the climax of the story, we see that all of Jesus' reliving and fulfilling of Israel's story and calling and destiny has been to qualify him to do one thing, and that is to die. In the end, Jesus, true Israel, true Son of God, true Emmanuel, is the true Passover lamb. His death alone, his shed blood alone, his resurrection alone, accomplishes what neither Abraham, nor Moses, nor David, nor any other was able to do. To truly deliver God's people from captivity, from sin, to death, and to the true Pharaoh, Satan. 
And that's how the Old Testament looked forward to the work of the Messiah and the inauguration of the New Covenant as a new and greater exodus. Jesus himself picked up on that theme on the Mount of Transfiguration when he spoke with Moses and Elijah. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, but Luke is the only one who tells us what they were talking about. And he says they were talking about the exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, most English translations say that they were talking about the decease or the departure that Jesus was about to accomplish. But in the Greek, the word is exodon, which is the word for exodus. And so you have Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and Jesus representing the new covenant. And when they want to talk about what Jesus is about to accomplish in his death, in his resurrection, they speak in terms of a new exodus. Now with that background, it should come as no surprise that Jesus' charge to his disciples in the Great Commission sounds a lot like God's charge to his people before they entered the promised land. He tells them not to be afraid. He tells them to be strong and of a good courage. He tells them that the, he is the one who goes with them, that he will never leave them nor forsake them, as he calls them to this great mission. And it should come as no surprise to us that Jesus' name in Hebrew is Joshua. So when we come to the Great Commission, the feeling we should get is that of standing on the edge of the promised land. And this time, the promised land is the whole world. It's not a small region of the Middle East. We're standing on the land, edge of the promised land. We're standing on a mountain. We're looking out over the whole world. The feeling we should have is the feeling that the 11 had. It's a mixture of exhilaration and being overwhelmed. Exhilaration because Jesus has inherited the world. And as his disciples, being one with him in the Spirit, we are co-heirs with him. We have inherited the world with him. And Jesus is saying to us, it's yours. But a sense of being overwhelmed because the world is filled with unbelieving nations, each greater and more powerful than we are. And Jesus is saying to us, go get it. That's exactly how Israel felt on the banks of the Jordan, and that's exactly how the apostles felt on the mountain in Galilee. And that's why Jesus does not begin or end the Great Commission with a command. He begins it with a declaration, and he ends it with a promise. The declaration is, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, verse 18. And the promise is, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Verse 20. Let's look at these. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is an indicative. It is a statement of fact. Jesus isn't asking the disciples to do anything. He isn't asking them to make him Lord. He's telling them the way things are. He is Lord. He has been given all authority, 
not some authority, not most authority, not authority over religious things, but all authority over all things in heaven and on earth. Notice, not in heaven only, but over the earth also. What Jesus is saying is that he is the active sovereign and ruler of everything that happens in heaven and on earth beginning 2,000 years ago. And that is not a matter of him simply assuming God's role as general sovereign as we see him in the Old Testament. For even though God was indeed sovereign over everything in the Old Testament, Satan had a valid judicial claim over mankind in the earth by virtue of Adam's sin in obeying Satan's word over God's word. And this is why Satan, when he tempted Jesus, could promise him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All this domain and its glory, Satan said, has been handed over to me, Luke 4, 6. Now that is the language of legal right and legal possession. But as of Jesus' resurrection, Satan can no longer say that. By virtue of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, Satan no longer has a judicial claim to mankind and the earth. That is not to say that he's not active. That's not to say that he's not prowling around as a roaring lion seeking to devour, as Peter tells us. It is to say that he no longer has a judicial rightful claim to mankind and the earth because Jesus has a superior claim. This is what Jesus is saying in the Great Commission. He's calling into mind a number of texts from the Old Testament, texts which are the most cited and alluded to in the entire New Testament in order to explain what Jesus has accomplished. I'll give you a few of those texts. One of them, Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came before the Ancient of Days, and they brought them before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom. Why? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Psalm 2. I declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the most quoted and alluded to verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Okay. In other words, more than any other verse in the Old Testament, this is the one that the apostles and the New Testament writers turn to to explain to New Testament Christians who Jesus is and what he's done. And this is what it says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now you remember that the footstool refers to the golden slab on the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. In 1 Chronicles 28.2, David said, I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant and for the footstool of our God. Okay? The, ark, the footstool sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim are above that. And the picture in the Old Testament is God is enthroned above the cherubim. He sits on the wings of the cherubim. His feet rest on the golden slab on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, now what's the other thing about this footstool? 
Well, it's also called the mercy seat. It is the place where the blood of atonement is bought and sprinkled on the day of atonement. It is where the blood goes. It is where forgiveness meets sin. It's where sin is taken away. The other interesting thing is that the footstool of God, the mercy seat of God, is where we are to worship Him. Psalm 132.7, let us worship at His footstool. And then we're told that this is really a picture, this picture in the tabernacle of this Ark of the Covenant, and then the mercy seat, and then the, the cherubim with God enthroned above. It's really a picture of the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 66, 1, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. So where did the blood of Jesus go? The blood of the Passover lamb, the blood that brings us a tournament. Where did it go? On this cursed earth, on the cursed ground. It went on the mercy seat. It went on the footstool of God. It went on the place from which we are to worship God. And so you see... For God the Father to say to His Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, what He's saying is, Son, sit on my throne until I make those who hate you and don't believe in you, until I make them your worshipers. That's what it means. And that's exactly what the Great Commission is about. Jesus is saying, make this true. Make the world of those who hate me, make them my worshipers. And so we see that in the, G in the Great Commission, in this claim of all authority in heaven and earth, Jesus isn't claiming to be Lord in just some general faraway sense. He's claiming to be Lord in a very specific here and now way. He has won the world. He owns it. It is his prize from his Father. It is his inheritance. From now on, Jesus is actively governing every aspect of this world, every aspect of history, and he is doing so in such a way that what is true as a matter of legal right, Jesus is Lord, will become true as a matter of actual experience. Jesus is my Lord. And that throughout the entire world. That, and nothing less, is what the Great Commission is about. Jesus, as the rightful owner and Lord of heaven and earth, is the basis... And the only proper and sufficient basis for the Great Commission. Jesus is not calling us to bring him some religious devotees whom he can rescue from this world. Jesus is calling us to bring him the world. Individually and collectively, people and nations as his disciples, as those who believe him, those who love him, those who learn of him, and those who obey him. Think about the picture of the Great Commission in the Old Testament, which was Israel going into the Promised Land. God did not call Israel to bring him some refugees from Canaan whom he could bring out into the desert. He called Israel to make Canaan, a land full of pagans and pagan culture, a land full of believers and believing culture. Now we are supposed to do that with the entire world. And only Jesus' position as active governing Lord of this world can serve as a basis for such a mission. And only His promise to be with us always can guarantee the success of such a mission. And guarantee its success is exactly what it does. 
Throughout the Old Testament, God's promise to be with someone or to be with his people was not simply a promise of comfort and consolation. It was a guarantee of success in the mission God had commanded. Consider what God says to Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Now you remember God called Gideon to be the deliverer of Israel and Gideon was a very reluctant deliverer. He didn't think he could do it. He says to God, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest clan in the tribe of Manasseh and I am the least one in that clan. The Lord says to Gideon, surely I am with you and you shall defeat the Midianites. For God to be with Gideon was the guarantee that Gideon would succeed in this impossible mission that God had called him to. Even so, Jesus' promise to be with us always is more than a promise of comfort and consolation. It is a promise of success in the mission he has given us. So we see that the Great Commission is more than a nice thought. It's more than a good idea. It is a guaranteed reality. And so we see that everything about the Great Commission is staggering in scope. It is comprehensive in every respect. Notice the repeated use of all. All authority in heaven and on earth. All the nations. I am with you always. In the Greek, literally, all the days I am with you. Jesus is with us in this mission, even, he says, to the end of the age. And the clear implication there is that this mission will take to the end of the age. The Great Commission is not a quick surgical operation. It is not an extraction. It is not a rescue. It is not an evacuation. It is not a Dunkirk. It is a D-Day, a comprehensive invasion that knows no half measures. It entails not only strategic and tactical victories and establishment of evangelical uh, beachheads, it also includes complete occupation, and not only occupation, but complete winning over of the locals. In World War II, the Allies won the decisive victory of the war at Normandy. Now that's what Jesus did on the cross. We weren't in that battle. We weren't qualified. We weren't capable. Jesus had to go that one alone. So unlike Normandy, the great Normandy, spiritually speaking, the cosmic Normandy was a battle, an assault with one man, Jesus. Just like David had to fight Israel's decisive victory against Goliath alone. That was one he went alone. But once David had won that decisive victory, the battle became Israel's. God included his people in the victory. And even so, Jesus includes us in his victory, not because he needs us. It would be a lot easier without us. He includes us in his victory, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. After Normandy, the Allies didn't stop advancing until they had complete occupation of Europe. And then something very strange happened. Twenty years 
After defeating and occupying Germany and Japan, they were our best friends. Now that is a very dim picture of what the Great Commission entails. Taking God's enemies and making them his friends. Well, how are we to do this? Jesus tells us, he says, make disciples of everyone. Make disciples of the nations. I think he says nations to make it clear that he's not just talking about individual. Salvation is individual. It begins there, but it doesn't stop there. It covers everything. Make disciples of everyone. Now notice he doesn't say to make converts. Although one has to be a convert to be a disciple. Still, a convert is not the same thing as a disciple. Perhaps the closest word we have in English to disciple is apprentice. A disciple is like an, an apprentice. A disciple is one who has placed themselves full-time under the instruction and command of a master so that they can learn and copy the master and ultimately become like the master. So Jesus said, it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master, Matthew 10, 24. So a disciple, is one, a disciple of Jesus is one who has devoted themselves full-time under the instruction and example of Jesus, that he may learn of him, imitate him, and become like him. This is the goal of the Christian life. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28 and 29, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God has predestined, that those who love him, those whom he's called to Christ, will be conformed to the image of Christ. And that is why God works all things together for our good. That is the end game. Now, how does this work? Inasmuch as we cannot see Jesus, nor can we hear him. Well, again, Jesus includes us in his work. He calls us to follow those who are much further down the road of discipleship from us. Paul captures this spirit when he said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the way discipleship happens. So what are the basic steps of discipleship? And as we look at these, Jesus gives us two, baptism and teaching. Again, notice that Jesus never uses the word conversion, even though it's implicit. He always talks about what conversion leads to. The point is that conversion is not an end in itself. Conversion is like a baby being born. It's a miracle. It's beautiful. But it's not the goal. The baby is supposed to grow up. And so Jesus gives us the things that conversion points to. The first one is baptism. Baptism is the placing of the name of the one true God, and that is the name singular in the Greek, one name, the one name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the placing of the name of the one true God upon people one at a time. In the Bible, naming is a sign of ownership. And taking another's name to yourself is a sign of belonging to them. As Paul said, 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your spirit, which belong to God. Now, baptism is a commencement. It is not graduation. This is important because this was something that the church in the early centuries got wrong. 
by the time you got into the fourth and fifth centuries, uh, people who were Christians for many, many years would wait until their deathbed to be baptized and to take the Lord's Supper because they, uh, theology had evolved at that time that they viewed uh, remission of sins, that the baptism washes away sin the way bath washes away dirt. And so they wanted to wait until they were just about to die to take their bath so they could be clean when they went into the presence of God. And so you would have Christians for many, many years, and they would not be baptized until their deathbed. And so they were viewing baptism as graduation. It is not. Baptism, Jesus tells us here, is commencement. It is when one enrolls in the school of Jesus Christ as an apprentice to Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, one has to know something about the one to whom one is being apprenticed. One has to know something of who he is, what he's about, what his school entails. But when one enrolls, that is when baptism comes, not at graduation. The second thing is that we are to teach. This is the second part of making disciples. Once enrolled in the school of Jesus Christ, disciples are to be taught. And teaching means more than simple instruction. It involves everything Paul tells Timothy to do as a pastor. He says, convince people, convince people. Correct, exhort, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And it also involves what Paul tells us, telling people to imitate you as you imitate Christ. All of that is what is involved in teaching. Well, what are people to be taught? Well, the basic thrust of what they are to be taught, the common theme that runs through every single lesson is, observe all that Jesus has commanded. Verse 20, observe all that Jesus has commanded. Now, Commanded, or command, is a word that can lead us astray today because in our modern culture, command tends to have a rather limited and technical meaning. We tend to think that anything that is not preceded by, I order you, is not a command. So if it doesn't have, I order you to do this, or I order you to do that, we think, well, that's not a command. The Greek word here is much broader than that. It means everything that Jesus has charged us with, everything he has taught us to do. Now notice Jesus says to observe everything he has said to do. This is a word that literally means to guard and protect. Guard and protect everything Jesus has told us to do. Now what this does, this word observe, guard and protect, it rules out rote rule keeping. It rules out boiling down what Jesus has said to a little list of do's and don'ts and following that little list. What this means is that Jesus' teaching has set forth a certain heart and mind toward God. That's something we see from him. Jesus has taught us a certain heart toward God. He has taught us a certain mind toward God. He has taught us a whole way of seeing life and living life, a whole way of seeing others and treating others. And we are to guard and protect that heart and that mind and that whole way of life. Now this, of course, requires deep interchanges within us. And it requires great skill, which is the meaning of the word wisdom in the Bible. It simply means skill. It requires great skill for the art of living life as God meant it to be lived. All of which we see perfectly expressed in Jesus 
our master teacher. Now this includes more than just skill for living basic life. It includes skill for every area and vocation to which God calls us to serve him. And that includes authorities in society, such as politicians and judges. We looked earlier at Psalm 2 as one of the, the key passages that Jesus is referring to in the Great Commission, where it says, sit at my right hand, the earth and its nations I give to you at, as your inheritance. The end of that psalm, the application part is this. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, kiss the Son, pay homage to Jesus, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. He says to judges, be instructed. Now, where are they supposed to get this instruction? What instruction is he talking about? He's talking about instruction in serving Christ as a judge or as a ruler or a politician. And where are they going to get that instruction? From the disciples of Jesus Christ, from the church. That's what Jesus envisions here. So this is the school we are enrolled in as disciples. This is the school we are to enroll people in every chance we get until the entire world is enrolled. And what is the graduation goal of this school? Paul tells us in Colossians 1.28, to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So, as we turn now to application, I want to come back to how the Great Commission ties in with Matthew's Gospel as a whole. Remember back to the very opening of Matthew's Gospel, how he began. He began by announcing the conclusion that Jesus is a new Adam who has made everything new. And nothing will ever be the same by virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection. The history of the first creation and the first human race was called in Genesis 5.1, the book of the generations of Adam. The history of the new creation and the new human race, born of the Spirit, is called in Matthew 1.1, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. All of history and everyone who lived before the resurrection of Jesus was living in the book of the generations of Adam. All of history and everyone living after the resurrection of Jesus, whether they believe in him or not, they are living in a different book. They are living in a different history. They are living in the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. So you see that when Christians in the early centuries after Constantine converted to Christianity, when they began numbering time from the birth of Jesus and calling every year Anno Domini, year of our Lord, Jesus Christ, this was not a postmodern power tray. It was simply telling the truth. History has begun anew. History has begun anew. This is what Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission. Now, there are certain realities that take effect immediately. The reality of who is Lord and who is the governor of heaven and earth. The reality of who is bringing about their purposes in history. The reality of what will be the outcome of history. 
the reality of God's presence through Christ with his people. All of those things changed immediately upon the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. But there are other realities that take effect gradually. The reality of Jesus being embraced as Lord and governor of heaven and earth. The reality of making disciples. The reality of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. All of those things take place gradually. So the visibility of the kingdom of God on earth and the reality of his will being done on earth as it is in heaven is slow and gradual, like a mustard seed. That's what Jesus taught us in Matthew 13. Like leaven in a bread recipe. But the gradualness of the visibility of these realities is not due to any lack of power or determination by Jesus, but are due only to the fact that Jesus' intention is to save the world, not scrap it. Think of it this way. In one of the most shattering statements of the New Testament, Peter, in 1 Peter 3, verses 20 and 21, says that the Old Testament picture of New Testament Christian baptism was Noah's flood. He says Christian baptism is the fulfillment, the reality of the picture, the type that was Noah's flood. Baptism is the reality of which Noah's flood was the picture, just like Jesus is the reality that, of which Joshua was the picture. The reality, the fulfillment, the antitype is always greater than the type or the foreshadow. Don't be fooled by the fact that baptism is one person at a time. Don't be fooled by the fact that God said in Genesis 9-11, never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. He did not say there wouldn't be a flood to save the earth. Through Christian baptism, God is flooding the world again one person at a time in a way that is going to cover the earth and change it far more profoundly and powerfully than Noah's flood did. But it's slow. It's one person at a time. Why? Because God is saving the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Destruction is fast. Salvation is slow. Destruction is fast because it's justice. Salvation is slow because it's mercy. It's kindness. It's patience. And one of the greatest mistakes we can make as Christians is reading the gradualness of nations becoming disciples and God's will being done on earth as indicators that there must be some sort of limitation on Christ's current kingship. How many times do you hear Christians reason from what they see in the world today back to what must be true about Jesus' current reign and kingdom. Jesus cannot be Lord right now. His kingdom cannot be here right now. Just look around. Have you read the papers? Have you watched the news? How many times do we each tend to reason the same way in our personal feelings? It doesn't feel 
like Jesus is Lord. It doesn't feel like he has all authority in heaven and earth. It doesn't feel like all of his enemies are being made his worshipers. Well, what do you think the eleven felt like when they heard Jesus say these words, that he had all authority in heaven and earth, and they looked around at the world in the first century? Judging by sight and feelings is a sure recipe for bad theology and bad application. What happens is we look around and we want to spare both us as Christians and Jesus the embarrassment. So we become his apologists to explain away the sad state of affairs we currently see. And so we begin to take the Great Commission and say, yes, but. We begin to add footnotes to the Great Commission, particularly with regard to Jesus' claim of all authority. Jesus is Lord, yes, but he's not currently asserting his lordship over this world. Jesus is a kingdom, it, it awaits his return. Jesus' present kingdom, it only extends over the church or over only, only over the hearts of believers. It doesn't include the secular realm. The bottom line is that we footnote Jesus' claim of all authority to mean Yes, but not here, not now. And we fail to realize that in doing so, we have conceded the entire battlefield. Jesus' present claim of all authority is the only basis for our commission to make disciples of the nations. And it is the sole basis for Jesus' promise to always be with us. Jesus doesn't say, go. He says, go, therefore. Go for this reason, because I am the king right now. This is why you go. And you know what? It shapes how we go in a thousand little ways. We cannot separate the, pre the present reality of Christ's claim or his command or his promise. Every other part of the Great Commission applies presently. Jesus' command to make disciples, when does that apply? Right now. When did it go into effect? 2,000 years ago. Jesus promised to be with us always. When does that apply? Right now. When did it go into effect? 2,000 years ago. Jesus' claim of all authority in heaven and earth, when does that apply? Not here, not now. When does it go into effect? When he comes back one day. Remember, Jesus promised to be with us in his mission. The one he's talking about here. The one in which he is the king. Not some mission we come up with. Now another mistake that we are prone to make as Christians is to judge by sight and feeling regarding our own personal lives, our own personal discipleship. Just as with the great mission we look out at the world, we look at all the enemies, we look at the influence of evil, and we let that govern us rather than the word of Christ. So when it comes to our own personal lives, we're prone to judge by sight and feeling. We see our flaws. We see our weaknesses. We see our sins. And we think, how can I be involved with Christ in this mission? Well, this is exactly how 
some of the disciples felt. It talks about it in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now the word translated doubt there doesn't mean what it seems. It doesn't mean they're doubting who Jesus is. No, what it means is they're unsure, they're insecure. What it means is, the last time they had seen Jesus, they had all abandoned him. How now can they come back to him? How can they be his disciples anymore? They all said, not just Peter, they all said, we will never leave you. We will die first. How can Jesus receive them at this point? That's what they're unsure about. That's what's causing the hesitancy. And then it says Jesus came to them. They come and they see Jesus. They come up on the mountain to meet him and they see him. And then there's hesitancy. There's insecurity. They're not sure. How can I come back to Jesus? Jesus then comes to them and he speaks to them. He tells them about his authority. He promises to be with them. He basically says, I told you you were going to run away. I told you that. Remember? I came in the world to save sinners. Are you a sinner? Then you're qualified. Are you not a sinner? You're not qualified. You can't be a disciple. You can't participate in the Great Commission. Are you a sinner? You're qualified. Jesus comes to you. So when we tend to become discouraged in our own lives and to become hesitant and go, how can Jesus use me? How can I have any part of this? Remember, Jesus says, I am with you. And so this is what you do. You do what the disciples did. You come to Jesus. And sometimes that means coming back to Jesus. They had to come back to him. They had to travel to Galilee. They had to come back to him. They were all a jumble inside. But by the grace of God, they did it. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how you failed this week. Come back to Jesus. You come back to him. You come back to him. That's what we do every Lord's Day. We come back to Jesus. Do what the disciples did. Worship him. Worship him. Believe him. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, he's only asking us to do one thing there. Believe. When Jesus says, I am with you, not just in some general concept, by name, I am with you. He's only asking you to do one thing. Believe. And when you believe those two things, don't worry. You will start to participate in the discipleship uh, process. Obey his commands. Be a disciple. Be enrolled in the school of Jesus Christ. Follow him. Obey him. Preserve his heart, his mind, his whole way of life. Be a disciple. Make disciples. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.